answering the top questions that shape Georgia politics in 2022. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it's the first time you're listening to the podcast, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to rate us while you're there because it really helps us grow the show. You know, Patricia, I always love this episode because around the end of every year, we do a preview of the biggest questions of the next year. And so we'll do that again this year as well. But now this is a chance for us to look back at the key moments of 2022 and what we thought they could be back in 2021. So we'll go over each of the questions and give our short answer to each of them. I promise I'll make it a short. Sometimes I feel like I talk too much on this podcast, <laughs> so I'll make them short. I'll make them short. Um, but so it, to get ready for this episode, I went back and read my columns from last year. I went back and did my own urine review, and it is such a different world right now than it was just a year ago. And so a year ago, we had an open question, uh, would Governor Brian Kemp get reelected? And it really looked like his biggest challenge was going to come in his primary. And that was a legitimate Mm -hmm. concern and worry for even for Republicans inside the state capitol. Andre Dickens had just been sworn in at the beginning of the year. Buckhead City felt like it was still about to happen um, or had a really good chance of happening. And Joe Biden started the year with a visit to Georgia and uh, was uh, over at Clark Atlanta University talking about how great Stacey Abrams is. (laughs) And although Stacey Abrams couldn't make it to that event, it just is such a stark reminder how quickly the political environment has changed. Um, And the other piece of it was really this question of um, what would happen with Donald Trump's candidates. It really felt like he had handpicked and recruited an entire slate of candidates that had what seemed like at the time, a you know, an even chance in these GOP primaries. And um, in our minds were, you know, what happens if they win their primaries? What does that mean to the state of Georgia, to the infrastructure, to those Democratic primaries, um, and then elections uh, that come later? So there were a lot of open questions when we were uh, starting the year and uh, ending the year last year and then and about startup 2022. Yeah, even, even some allies of Governor Kemp gave him a 50-50 shot of winning a primary against David Perdue at this time last year. He was getting booed at Republican gatherings. Donald Trump's endorsement seemed like a golden ticket. Even Jeff Duncan, you know, decided not to run, uh, not because of Trump, but certainly Trump would have would have, would have been a factor in his reelection bid. So a lot, a lot has changed. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk all about all of it. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Okay, we kind of previewed the first question, but let's jump right into it. Will Donald Trump ruin the Georgia GOP's chances in 2022? I'll, I'll do my answer first, and then you can expand. But mine was, of course, not really. Um, you know, Brian Kemp wins uh, in a convincing fashion, a 52-point victory over David Perdue. The other hand-picked Donald Trump back challengers to Republican incumbents went down by huge margins. Jody Heiss loses to Brad Raffensperger. Chris Carr easily wins. John King, the insurance commissioner, even faced the Trump back challenger from someone talking about woke insurance, whatever the, whatever that means. Um, he easily won. Um, some Trump back candidates obviously won their primaries. Burt Jones won an open primary for Lieutenant Governor after Jeff Duncan decided not to run for another term. But Burt Jones did not win based on Trump. And Trump wasn't the center of his campaign as it was for, let's say, David Perdue. And Herschel Walker, of course, won the GOP Senate nomination. But in the same vein, Herschel Walker did not base his campaign on Donald Trump and would have in most most analysis would have won even without Donald Trump's endorsement. It certainly helped him, but he was Herschel Walker. He, he had this legendary name recognition and soaring profile and all that. So that's why my answer is not really. Certainly, you can chalk up Herschel Walker's woes and the fact that he emerged as the nominee in part to Donald Trump, though. So it's not a complete no. But Republicans were able to basically consolidate behind Governor Kemp and the other Republican incumbents. We wrote kind of early in, in the summer that the Republican civil war over Trump appeared over. And for one main reason, David Perdue's challenge to Governor Kemp essentially unified Republicans behind him. You know, it did him more good than it did harm in a way that we could not have anticipated at this time last year when we thought, at least I thought, that even had David Perdue lost, he would still have hurt Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp would be limping into a general election, you know, with, with a significant number of Republicans still kind of, you know, squeamish about him. That didn't happen. 95% plus Republicans backed Brian Kemp in polls over the summer after the primary showing to me that, and showing to the Republican world and the media world as well, that Kemp had unified Republican support, didn't have to worry about the MAGA base turning it turning on him. Some of that was because of Brian Kemp's. Some of that was because Stacey Abrams was such a polarizing figure to Republicans. And some of that was also a rejection of Donald Trump. But either way, Republicans can end this cycle having won every race, but of course, that Senate runoff, that, that's why we hedge a little bit about Donald Trump hurting the GOP's chances, ruining the GOP's chances in 2022. Yeah. So I think that Donald Trump not only didn't hurt Republicans, for the Republicans that he went up against, he helped them a lot, like a lot, a lot. So not only did he go after Governor Brian Kemp and go after Secretary of State Raffensperger and Chris Carr, like in the moment after the elections, by choosing these primary candidates who were all solely focused on the election and overturning the election, it really acted as a constant reinforcement throughout the primary season that this is the Trump pick candidate who would overturn the election. And this other Republican who he doesn't like 
is the Republican who won't overturn the election, who refused to do it. And so that built for Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, and, and to a lesser extent, Chris Carr, these these brands independent of the Trump chaos and of Trump's efforts to overturn the election. And it really, I feel like for Kemp in particular and Raffensperger, created this persona as somebody totally above politics in the minds of some voters, um, especially some Democratic voters. So in the GOP primary, we saw tens of thousands of Democrats not bothering to vote in the Democratic primary at all and going instead to vote for Kemp and Raffensperger in particular. And so you take that kind of momentum out of the primary and uh, Kemp and Raffensperger both continue to have a lot of crossover appeal. And so I heard from Democrats consistently throughout the general election that they felt like they could not land a hand, they could not land a glove on Brian Kemp because of what had happened with the election. And, you know, you saw Stacey Abrams try and message around that and say, don't, you know, don't believe what you're being told. Don't, you know, somehow he's being portrayed as a moderate. He's no moderate. He's an extremist. But it was just so hard for her to paint Brian Kemp as an extremist after the most extreme person in the country, Donald Trump, had this massive fight with him and then went to all the trouble of recruiting somebody to run against him. So, And I think that strength carried for the Republicans all the way down the ticket. And so it's almost like Donald Trump um, did just a whole bunch of free advertising for those guys in a battleground state that is not dominated by Republicans anymore to find a way to have the leading Republicans painted as not as not loyal to their as not sort of beholden to their party as willing to stand up for the state in the face of criticism from their own party um that was just the message that voters got about them all year long and that was incredibly helpful up and down the ticket you're exactly right and this is something that even stacy abrams campaign um lamented after the fact lauren Orgo and that now famous 52 tweet thread talked about how to many white voters you know, he didn't seem too bad anymore um, because he, he he was looked at as more moderate in comparison to Donald Trump. Although, as we've noted many times in our stories and our coverage and on this podcast, Brian Kemp is the last person to call himself a moderate. He's very conservative. But, you know, standing up to Trump's efforts to overturn the election made him this sort of anti-Trump figure. And no example to me is starker of Donald Trump's waning influence in Georgia than the fact that he visited pretty much every battleground state in the run-up to the midterm, except for Georgia. And even when Herschel Walker was worried about energizing his base before the runoff, the only thing that Trump did for him or, or and that his campaign wanted Trump to do for him was hold a tele-rally that the media didn't even have access to, that, that only a few, a very small number of Republican Trump supporters were even on that call. So that shows you Trump's diminished impact in Georgia. I know it's very different in some other states, but in Georgia, he is sort of a spent force right now. Which leads us to our, our next question, which was, can Georgia Democrats overcoming a souring national climate? Patricia, what's your verdict on that one? It depends on the Democrat. That's my answer. Because look at Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, he was running up against uh, the same headwinds as all the other Democrats on the ticket. But he had a very economic focused message. And um, when he was talking about 
all of the bills that he had passed in the Senate, he always framed them in an economic um, in economic terms. So even a healthcare bill would help people um, deal with their the cost of drugs. Uh, he talked a lot about his gas prices bill. Talked about just different ways to bring down individual costs. And even if he didn't serve on the Commerce Committee, didn't didn't serve on the Banking Committee, but he did manage to push the bills that he did pass and frame them even as an economic message and also as a part of that talk about people struggling and talking about inflation and talking about how do we make it easier for everyday Georgians. So can he rise above the national climate check? Yes. He also talked a lot about Ted Cruz, <laughs> talked mm-hmm. a lot about working with the Republicans. Um, so he really worked to build even an ever so tenuous tie to Senate Republicans who actually do really like him quite a bit personally, um, really worked to just frame his message in those terms, reading the room reading the room of Georgia voters who were like, you know what, right now, we don't like Joe Biden as much as we used to. And so he really did adjust his message accordingly. Now take somebody like Stacey Abrams. No, very, very hard for her to separate herself away from the national environment, particularly because she had a much longer relationship with Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. She had been campaigning with Joe Biden. She was talked about as Joe Biden's running mate. Um, So I think even her own campaign saw the futility of trying to separate herself away from Joe Biden even as he was polling at 38% approval rating here in the state. Um, Also, her message, we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, her message was just sort of all over the place. She did have an economic message. She also had a criminal justice message, an abortion message, um, education message, sort of you name it, she had it, but it ended up being, when when a campaign is trying to be everything to everybody, it ends up being not much to anybody. And that was the challenge with that messaging. And it just didn't, she couldn't rise above the economic environment, I think. Well, to the same question, I like your answer. It depends on the candidate, because that's kind of where I thought the answer should be too. Um, Look, we know the red wave didn't really amount to much throughout the country, but certainly in Georgia, it landed here over the beaches of Tybee Island and Savannah (laughs) with, with gale force winds. Camp wins by nearly eight points. He got the mandate that he didn't claim after his razor-thin 2018 win. Other statewide Republicans, except for Herschel Walker, easily won. And then, of course, Republicans picked up a U.S. House seat by re-engineering the drawing of political boundaries. But, you know, the, the caveat to that, of course, is that Warnock won. Unlike Abrams, Warnock was able to navigate the anti-Biden backlash, as you mentioned, to talk about bipartisan efforts and to frame the race into a referendum on Herschel Walker. And there's good news for Democrats beyond the pastor's whim. Sanford Bishop down in Southwest Georgia easily held off a formidable opponent in the state's only competitive U.S. House race. Democrats picked up a few legislative seats as well, slightly narrowing the Republican edge. So Democrats... If you were a senior Democratic leader coming off, you can at least say to national Democrats who who are thinking about pouring more money into George in 2024, the Democrats held. They held that U.S. House seat. Um, there was no way they were they were going to win the sixth district after it was redrawn. So they they uh, Lucy McBath threw her hands up, moved over next door, 
uh, beats Carolyn Bordeaux in the seventh district instead. So you lose a house seat there, but you're, th- that was unwinnable for Democrats. You hold the competitive house seat you actually could win. You hold U.S. Senator Warnock's seat, and you pick up a few legislative seats in the suburbs. So all in all, they didn't make any gains on the statewide context, but they held that big seat in the U.S. Senate. So they overcame the souring national climate to a very limited degree, but it did show that there is a path to doing so. Okay, our, our third question dives right into that second question, which is, can Raphael Warnock rebuild the coalition that fueled his 2021 win? And Patricia, you already highlighted that, but I, I take it your answer is a definite yes. <laughs> My answer is yes. Now, we had a lot of help from Herschel Walker, because you and I both talked to a number of Republicans who would have wanted to vote for a Republican for Senate, but just couldn't do it. Now, what Raphael Warnock was able to do, though, and not all Democrats can do this, he gave those Republicans and even some independents a place to come and a place to put their vote because they had so little confidence in Herschel Walker. So by having those economic messages and also by having, by maintaining, especially with his ad strategy, a very positive personal brand, um, quoting the prophet Isaiah, quoting the Bible in uh, campaign commercials. When was the last time we saw a Democrat quoting the Bible in a statewide campaign commercial? I don't remember it. Um, so he he maintained this really unique independent brand. They used to say he's going to remain the reverend. And so that just gave those uh, Republicans and independents a place to come back to. So he was able to, um, I don't know that he built that coalition. I think he left the door open for the coalition to come have a safe harbor away from Herschel Walker, who did not have an independent message, did not have any kind of a message that was based on the economy. He talked a lot more about the elevator, um, the uh, devil taking an elevator to hell than he did about uh, the economy. He talked, um, you know, a bit about Joe Biden, but that message was just all over the place. And he had his own, you know, just constant fire hose of personal drama. And it was obviously something that Walker couldn't overcome, but Warnock definitely took advantage of the opportunity and left the door open for that coalition to continue to, to really recreate itself, I'd say. That's such a good way to frame it, Patricia, because, yeah, of course, you know, Warnock's strategy is impossible to replicate because he had the benefit of a scandal-plagued opponent, all sorts of personal baggage. No other candidate can count on an opponent with sort of issues, uh, controversies that Walker carried throughout the campaign. I mean, we talked about on this podcast, but issues he had starting with lying about graduating from UGA and not living in Georgia uh, would have sidelined. Yeah, would have, I mean, and that was before he even got in the race. The, those would have sidelined any other candidate. But of course, they did not end Herschel Walker's candidacy because he's a he was a very unique candidate. And that came with strengths and weaknesses, but more weaknesses than strength, as it turned out. But Warlock also had to prove to voters that he was an acceptable alternative, especially to those moderate independent voters who usually vote Republican. And he had to prove that he was able to adapt to the playing field and and win in a really forbidding political climate um, for Democrats. And he mobilized this disparate group of voters that no other Georgia Democrat could successfully unite in 2022. 
Uh, the exit polls and the final polls that we saw showed that, yes, Senator Warnock had a huge advantage among the Democratic base, black voters, liberals, younger Georgians. Those are traditional bastions of reliable Democratic support. But he also attracted a sizable block of swing voters, including white college-educated suburbanites, the Dave Matthews voters, who typically <laughs> vote GOP. And of course, he not only had Dave Matthews, but he had a relentless appeal to those voters throughout commercials, events, uh, messaging, digital ads, you name it. These were not sort of afterthoughts to his campaign. And yeah, we're not talking about 20, 30, 40% of the electorate, but we are talking about enough that made the difference between a runoff and an outright victory for Herschel Walker. And we're talking about probably the difference maker. We'll never know for sure, but a key difference maker in the, uh, in the runoff. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we have started calling those the Patagonia vest voters, people who, (laughs) (laughs) the the ones who have to ring up a babysitter to go see Dave Matthews. Um, Those really had not been a part of the Democratic coalition, to be honest with you, that was envisioned at the beginning of the year. It was the thought that um, Democrats would would simply remobilize and reinvigorate their Democratic base with the new Stacey Abrams model, that that's really where they needed to put all of their energy. The Warnock campaign put a lot of their energy there, but they also broadened their aperture, sort of opened up their sights to who they thought would be available based on the opponent that they ended up getting. Now, listen, Republicans had so many other choices in that primary. And I was um, in one of my columns, I was going back and reading just the immense frustration of Latham Sadler, who was a Navy SEAL, of Kelvin King, who, by the way, also played college football for the Air Force Academy, but nobody cared about uh, about what he had done. Very successful businessman. Gary Black elected statewide at least three times. Three times. And yeah. um, you could just see the frustration on their faces. We were out there campaigning with these guys. Calvin King had already been to 159 counties, all 159 counties before the start of last year. So he had, and then he sort of re, you know, retract his steps. They had done so much work to get into that race and make themselves competitive for that race. And it just did not matter because Herschel Walker got in. And they just got steamrolled. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about three more of the big questions that shaped 2022 and our answers to those questions. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. Not only do we host this podcast, we also are the two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning. 
if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast in your first month of unlimited digital access, less than a buck, 99 cents. Subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Okay, so let's tackle some more of the big questions that we had for 2022 back at this time last year. And the big one, and it's sort of fallen off the radar, but it was huge at this point in, in 2021, which is how will incoming Atlanta mayor Andre Dickens navigate the prickly politics in Georgia? At the time, there was a huge push for Buckhead cityhood. There was big questions about the fate of city-state relations that had really soured between Governor Kemp and uh, Mayor Dickens' predecessor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Andre Dickens was somewhat unknown to a lot of Georgia politicians, but he made himself very known very quickly by one of his first calls was to the late Speaker David Ralston. Of course, he also called Jeff Duncan, who had a very close relationship with him, as well as Governor Kemp. And Patricia, so far, I guess my verdict would be he's navigating it very shrewdly and effectively. The Buckhead City push was nixed last year by Speaker Ralston, by Lieutenant Governor Duncan, uh, never even got to the point where Kemp even had to issue an endorsement or, or a fatal poison pill for it. And part of that is Andre Dickens going out there and being the sort of force of nature, always going around and making himself available to state lawmakers at events, beefing up public safety forces and police forces in Buckhead. Also, part of it is because of the disastrous campaign that Buckhead cityhood folks have run, just really unbelievably ineffective. And, you know, going out there and promoting conspiracy theories about beloved state figures. I don't even want to repeat it because some of that stuff is so bizarre and and awful. Amplifying racist white supremacists and tying their wagon to David Perdue. (laughs) Whoops. Who endorsed the the idea of Bucket Cityhood along with Donald Trump, but also ended up losing the primary by 52 points. So all that is to say, Mayor Dickens enters 2023, in my view, with a strengthened hand, but far from you know the concerns about Buckhead and the, the concerns that Buckhead cityhood proponents have pushed, as well, as well as greater Atlanta residents have pushed, are far from over, right? There's still awful things, murders and, and headline-grabbing crime that's still proliferating in Buckhead. So they, he still has his work cut out for him, but, but at least there's a little bit more breathing room for splitting the city in two. Yes. And, um, you know, in January of last year, it was a very open question about what would happen in the Georgia legislature with Buckhead City. Um, What would the bill look like? Who would introduce it? How much momentum would they have? Uh, Could they attach it to a separate bill? Could they get it through the front door, the back door? You know, it was something we were watching intensely, very, very closely, because it seemed like such a real possibility. I think a big piece of the possibility was created by former Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who really kept arm's length distance from Buckhead, from Buckhead City, from a lot of issues toward the end of her term. I mean, she really was truly on her way out the door. And so I think that created this momentum um, within Buckhead to say, well, listen, if if that mayor's not going to do anything about this, maybe some other mayor will do it. And maybe it needs to be our own mayor. But I would say very, very quickly, Andre Dickens, um, to your point, really hit the brakes on that. And it, you know, for as real as it seemed in January, by February, it was 
totally dead for the year. And that had a lot to do with Andre Dickens reaching out to Speaker Ralston. And he would do this very quietly. Like we only found out these things later after they had happened. He went up to the governor's office many times. He went up to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's office many times. There used to be this classic standoff between the mayor and the governor, you know, years ago when it was a different mayor and a different governor, who would walk across the street? Because the city hall and the Capitol are basically across the street from each other. Who was going to walk across the street, sort of, who was going to take the initiative to say, okay, I'll come over there. You know, Dickens just never played that game. He went there quietly to the Capitol many, many times. He had the Buckhead City lawmakers come to his office, invited them to his office more than once to talk to them privately and say, Mm. what can we do? And so when once Buckhead City had was dead for the year, I wrote a column about it and said, you know, if an autopsy was conducted, it would have three causes of death. Uh, One was Andre Dickens. One was the Buckhead City process itself. They never answer questions, like big questions about Buckhead City. Like, if you live in Buckhead, where will your kids go to school? Because they can't go to Atlanta, can't go to APS schools anymore, because guess what? You don't live in Atlanta anymore. And the Buckhead people not once had an answer for it other than, no, they're going to APS schools. And APS is like, "Mm, no, they're not. (laughs) So We never got past that sort of just farcical pretension that this was ever going to be a real solution. And uh, the other reason was Bill White, you know, the head of the of the Buckhead City movement, to your point, just became increasingly aggressive and incendiary. But the problems in Buckhead are still very real. And so to your point, is the is, is Buckhead City itself dead? It's, it's kind of hard to see it resurrecting itself with its current leadership and contours. That's that's hard to believe because we still don't know where those kids would go to school. But a 77-year-old grandma was murdered in her garage um, at noon on a Saturday. Now, the difference is that Andre Dickens spoke with the family, held a press conference. The suspect was arrested within 48 hours. And Bill White sent out a fundraising appeal, you know? So we have really different leadership on both sides of this, on the two sides of this issue. But, you know, crime, not just Buckhead, crime all over Atlanta, crime all around the state is just, it still feels like it's at really serious, almost epidemic levels. And it's something that we've just got to get our arms around. And I guarantee you public safety will be a huge issue in the 2023 legislative session. Okay, our next question is, and we posed this last year at this time, will the pandemic continue to reshape Georgia politics? Okay. So, so for some context, as we asked this question, you know, at the time pandemic restrictions were of course politicized in 2020 state and federal vaccination programs were this big polarizing issue in 2021. We were continuing to see issues of public health that were once relegated afterthoughts. They were being front and center in statewide debates. And of course, we had this new election where we could see the rapid spread of Omicron variant. Other issues were becoming these big divides. My answer to this is, though, now with a year in context, not really. We knew, at least I, one of my biggest signals that the pandemic wouldn't loom over the campaigns was an ad that Senator Warnock did. It was his debut ad in February of 2022 where there was not a mask in sight. To me, it was a sign the Democrats were eager to shift the attention away from COVID-19 restrictions that had really exasperated a lot of voters. That's not to say, though, that the pandemic didn't play a role. 
uh, and certainly was a, a part of the campaign from the get-go. Governor Kemp, what was his main economic message? It was that he lifted coronavirus restrictions early in the opening weeks of the global pandemic, and he pummeled Abrams and her allies for criticizing that decision. And then secondly, of course, in one of the biggest missteps of Stacey Abrams' campaign, she posed for a maskless picture at a school surrounded by students who were wearing face coverings. She had apologized for that, and Republicans framed it as an act of brazen hypocrisy from a candidate who blamed Kemp's inaction for the spread of the virus. This was something that, you know, to this day comes up on social media when Republicans are criticizing Stacey Abrams. That picture became sort of a symbol, to them at least, of her hypocrisy. So certainly the pandemic was a part of the political conversation, but it I would not say it reshaped the debate here in Georgia. No, and if it reshaped the debate, it was in the opposite way that many people had expected. So we have to put COVID in the pile with Donald Trump of the least anticipated reasons that Governor Brian Kemp was more successful even than anticipated in his reelection run. Um, he campaigned on opening the state first for COVID. At the time, that was a huge political risk, uh, but something, it was uh, Kemp opened before any other state. Donald Trump said that it was a huge mistake. Um, he, <laughs> I told this to, to one of Kemp's uh, aides recently because he said, even the national media said I was, shouldn't have done it. You know, And I, I had written a column for USA Today, and I think the headline was cute toes aren't worth it because he had opened up spas and salons. (laughs) (laughs) So I was definitely in the pile of people who said, you know, this is crazy. And it seemed crazy at the time. You know, fast forward a year and a half later, two years later, and uh, the death rates in Georgia were about consistent with other states. Still, COVID is not over. It's not gone. But Brian Kemp campaigned on the message that he found a way to make it manageable for not just for businesses, which are very important, but also for schools. And I actually I uh, was meeting with Democrats recently who said they were kind of relieved. You know, they said I didn't think that this was going to work for Kemp, but it but it worked out. They weren't relieved for Kemp. They were relieved for the state that things had worked out much better than expected. And Kemp can take credit for that, you know. So uh, particularly kids in schools, the decision to open schools up in Georgia much sooner than some schools in the Northeast was really a game changer for Kemp. And so that is the source of some of that independent support for Kemp. They can look at his record and say, wow, you know, even if they didn't think it was the right idea at the time, in retrospect, he took a leadership position that has proven to have been a good one for the state um, and certainly, you know, no worse than other states. Uh, But again, you know, COVID continues, but Kemp has positioned himself as somebody who is able to manage through that. And so I didn't, COVID did reshape politics in a way, but not in the way that we expected. That's a great point. Okay, Patricia, our last question that we asked ourselves in the state at this point last year was how brutal will this legislative session get? Because we knew that Governor Kemp would be pushing for some of his priorities that he wasn't able to get done. Some of his campaign promises like expanding gun rights, 
Uh, there was talk about new limits on abortion. There's a fresh debate over which books were allowed in public school libraries. There was talk about new voting restrictions that go beyond what happened in 2021 with the rewrite of Georgia's election laws. And of course, the legislation that could allow Buckhead to divorce itself from Atlanta was a very much of an open question. And of course, in the backdrop of all that, Governor Kemp is looking for different ways to inspire conservatives to help his campaign. So Patricia, my verdict, I don't know if brutal is the right way to, to frame it, but I, I, I think it's just really, really busy. And for Kemp, uniquely productive because the governor was able to unite the Republican-controlled legislature, and it's very fractious. And as we've talked about, he and the late Speaker David Ralston didn't always see eye to eye on a lot of important issues. Well, Ralston ended up kind of swallowing his concerns, biting his tongue on some of the issues that he didn't agree with Governor Kemp over um, in the name of getting Governor Kemp reelected. He, he felt very strongly like Kemp was a much better and more effective governor than David Perdue would have been. And so that helped Kemp pass all sorts of priorities, ranging from that new gun expansion, new education measures that direct how public school teachers address race and divisive concepts, a $1.1 billion state surplus refund to taxpayers. You know, when it's all said and done, Kemp won just about every proposal on that considerable wish list, including a measure that Ralston personally opposed that sets the stage for high school administrators to ban transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. So I think to Democrats, it was brutal. To Republicans, it was productive. And to you know, just outside observers, it was a tremendously busy session, but also sort of an example of how when a, the Republican Party is pulling in one direction, it can get a lot done. Folks might not like what they got done. Some folks love it. Some folks don't. But a lot got done this past legislative session. It really did. And when you even as it was happening, it was so notable that Governor Kemp and David Ralston really were working in concert with each other in many cases. And so you could see that Ralston was helping Kemp sort of create the building blocks of the campaign that he was about to run against both David Perdue, because by then he knew he had the David Perdue challenge, and Stacey Abrams, because he also knew that he was going to roll right into a Stacey Abrams challenge. She had already declared um, that she was running as well. And so you had sort of one chunk of the session was all about those really, really conservative bills that were so emotional, especially the CRT conversation and the divisive concepts conversation. It was uh, pushing these bills to really change the way teachers were allowed to even answer questions about history in Georgia schools. And a number, I will never forget a black lawmaker said, well, you know, in a debate, he said, well, listen, I find a rebel mascot to be divisive. That's offensive to me. Are we getting rid of that mascot? And the response from Republican was like, oh, that's actually a very sensitive subject. You know, so, but Republicans kind of rolled Democrats on a lot of these big issues, just because they had the votes, just because they had the votes. And um, Kemp and Ralston had formed that alliance to really push a lot of these bills through. And in Ralston's case, it was even to sort of allow them to go through. Kemp made it very clear he needed some big conservative wins. The transgender sports bill is another good example of that. Ralston didn't want that bill, did not want it. 
Kemp on the very last legislative day said, I'm going to need this to pass. Um, so they did pass that bill, but not without changes from Ralston. And that uh, kind of walked that bill back a little bit. So to your point, it was really busy. There were also a lot of those economic kind of goodies for voters um, that Kemp knew he would need for the general. So the teacher pay raises, law enforcement pay raises across the board, income tax cut. You know, it's not a huge amount of people's tax bill, but it's a cut and it's for everybody. And that is significant coming from a governor. But it ended on such a high note, I think. And it's kind of amazing that it happened before David Ralston passed away. But that mental health reform bill got a unanimous vote from the General Assembly in the end. Every single lawmaker voted for it. And it was something that Ralston said was his most important accomplishment in his entire career. And it will really change the way that people can access mental health treatment here in the state. And that's something that um, it got all that support because Democrats had a lot to do with designing that bill along with Republicans. And people know how desperately needed it was here in the state. And so you know, for all of the emotional debates and disappointments and probably damaged friendships and, you know, all of those things, it was that big, big bill that passed at the end that I think people left that session thinking, you know, we just did a good thing. And that was something that people could could really feel good about. You know, that's a great way to end this podcast on a positive note. <sighs> ah. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. See you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.